the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 70, June 1971 Early in this century, an English scholar began to study the relationship between sexual regulations and cultural behavior. He was skeptical of the idea that there is a direct consequence that chastity and monogamy produce a high culture and a superior class. As J.D. Unwin wrote, quote, Frankly, I hoped to dispel the idea, but I had not proceeded far before I was forced to conclude that the brave hypothesis probably contained an awkward and perplexing truth. Unquote. Unwin was compelled by the data to revise his personal philosophy. It is not our purpose to go into a detailed analysis of Unwin's study of sex and culture, Oxford Press, 1934. Very briefly, a society which permits its youth to be, quote, sexually free, unquote, produces a low culture, where prenuptial and postnuptial chastity are absent. The culture is on an exceedingly primitive level and manifests little intelligence, production, or foresight. As the level of sexual regulations increase towards a biblical standard, although Unwin would not use that term, the level of culture improves where virginity before marriage and chastity after marriage becomes the standard, a high level of intelligence, culture, science, and religion appears. Unwin's conclusions were based on a study of every society for which the sufficient data is available. The cultures studied included ancient civilizations as well as the American Indian tribes, African, South American, and Asiatic tribes, and societies. Unwin also held that, quote, the amount of energy that uncivilized people could display is the same as that of any other society. The amount they do display depends on the degree in which they have satisfied the necessary conditions, unquote. Moreover, quote, in human records there is no case of an absolutely monogamous society failing to display great energy, unquote. In fact, Unwin found, quote, the relation between compulsory continence and cultural behavior exact enough to be expressed by means of mathematical symbols, unquote. In three generations, by sexual license, an upper class can reduce itself to the lowest class level. Moreover, quote, if I am right in concluding that these potential powers can only be displayed under conditions of compulsory continence, such conditions cannot be unnatural, unquote. Writing again in 1935, 
in a summary address on his work, Unwin, in Sexual Regulations and Cultural Behavior, saw a growing rebellion against the morality which alone produces an upper-class culture. There was a possibility, if men retained their moral standards, of great cultural advance and a major scientific era. He added, however, quote, Soon there will be born into a new tradition, a new generation that will probably submit to almost any external conditions so long as it is permitted to eat, drink, dance, copulate, and sleep as it desires. I hold no brief for social energy, which may or may not be desirable, but there can be no doubt that a study of human records reveals the fact that a group in such a psychological condition has never displayed a great energy, and that such ambitions are typical of societies in a state of little or no energy." Unwin's predictions were certainly to the point. We now have indeed a generation that does, quote, submit to almost any external conditions, unquote, of filth and disorder as long as it is free, quote, to eat, drink, and copulate, and sleep as it desires, unquote. The cultural changes Unwin describes were not the product of any rational decisions. No, lower classic culture suddenly decided to raise its status and then proceeded rationally to implement that change. Instead, the changes were products of religious conversion, a new religious faith, which introduced a new motivation and force into society. Unwin saw cultural energy as a direct product of moral standards and laws. It must be added that moral law is in turn a direct product of religion. As George Washington saw so clearly in his farewell address of 1796, every moral order presupposes a theological order. He wrote, quote, Let it simply be asked, Where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oath, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Unquote. To deny this, Washington felt, was an attempt quote, to shake the foundations of the fabric. Unquote which he could not look upon with indifference. Since Washington was making a political address, his argument was practical rather than philosophical, but it was still true. The basic faith of a culture determines its morality and character. C.G. Jung, in the epilogue to Modern Man in Search of a Soul, wrote that, quote, It is becoming more and more obvious that it is not starvation, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is mankind's greatest danger, because he has no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating in their effect than the greatest natural catastrophes, unquote. The, quote, psychic epidemic, unquote, of our time is a lower-class mentality, a rejection of work and discipline, and above all, a rejection of the sovereignty of God. In the 1920s, Ortega E. Gasset foresaw the rise of this new mentality, and in 1930 set forth his earlier thesis in the revolt of the masses. He held that, quote, 
The type of man dominant today is a primitive one, a nature mensch rising up in the midst of a civilized world. The world is a civilized one. Its inhabitant is not. He does not see the civilization of the world around him, but he uses it as if it were a natural force. The new man wants his motor car and enjoys it, but he believes that it is the spontaneous fruit of an Edenic tree. In the depths of his soul, he is unaware of the artificial, almost incredible character of civilization and does not extend his enthusiasm for the instruments to the principle which made them possible. Unquote. The scientific specialist of our day is also a barbarian. Quote, he also believes that civilization is there in just the same way as the earth's crust and the forest primeval. Unquote. As a result of this abandonment of quote, principle, unquote, Ortega said that, quote, Europe has been left without a moral code, unquote. Of the talk then of a, quote, new morality, unquote, Ortega said, quote, when people talk of the new morality, they are merely committing a new immorality and looking for a way of introducing contraband goods, unquote. Ortega, Unwin, and others have been the issue, but they have not looked to the answer. The morality or immorality of our day is a lower class phenomenon. It is a present-oriented perspective which considers the future irrelevant and the present all-important. John Lukacs, in The Passing of the Modern Age, has made an important point with respect to property. Ownership or property has lost its importance in modern society and consumption has replaced ownership as a goal. But consumption itself has failed to satisfy modern man. We can add that consumption is a lower-class goal. It is present-oriented entirely, whereas ownership or property is a future-oriented and upper- and middle-class goal. It represents work, planning, and capitalization. This lower-class morality cannot be replaced by a lower-class religion. Even at its best, the, quote, Jesus movement, unquote, is almost entirely lower class in nature because it substitutes emotionalism and enthusiasm for discipline and work. A man's religion can be defined as what he has when he is tired, discouraged, and disappointed. When hope and success are stripped from him, then his spiritual capital, or lack of it, is in evidence. The average so-called Christian today has little or no spiritual capital when his happy, happy meetings, his lovely choirs, his beautiful churches, and his robed clergy are taken away from him. Not surprisingly, in his religion he is consumption-oriented and lower class. Just as in the realm of politics, he wants the state to provide him with cradle-to-grave security, so in the realm of the church he wants similar provision. He wants to remain a babe in Christ, endlessly fed pious pap, and given a religion, whether, quote, evangelical, unquote, or, quote, liberal, unquote, which satisfies his appetites as a consumer. The fallacy of socialism is that it assumes that society's problem is essentially one of distribution and consumption. It fails to recognize the priority of production, and, as a result, every socialist society is beset by problems it cannot solve. The future has a habit of becoming today, and the consumption-oriented man eats up his inheritance from the past 
and sells out his future in order to, quote, enjoy, enjoy, quote, today. Thus much more than a religious revival is needed. What is required is a serious application of fundamental faith to every area of life, thought, work, and discipline are required, and the patient work of reconstruction. The smorgasbord principle is good eating at times, but applied to religion is false. Man is not sovereign. He cannot pick and choose what he wants to use in religion. God is absolute Lord and sovereign, and man must obey him whether it pleases man or not, and he must obey in everything God requires of him. Because of this smorgasbord principle in religion, a systematic theology is denied today because it requires assent to the sovereign God. A good way to see what modern thought means is to listen to Negro leaders. They echo simply, directly, and bluntly the basic faith and morality of modern man. John Orr Coyne, Jr., in the Kumquat Statement, 1970, cites a Negro student who was involved in serious acts of violence at San Francisco State as saying, quote, I've been denied so long that anything I take is right, unquote. This is a familiar and old refrain heard by many pastors and counselors as they deal with men and women seeking self-justification. The most affluent people of all history reek with self-pity. This cancer of self-pity is today apparent in the Negroes, the hippies, parents and children, and in virtually all peoples in our society. Not surprisingly, with a lower-class generation, we are in difficult times, and many hold it against God that all is not sweetness and light. They want to walk by sight and have all problems eliminated in advance. Spurgeon wisely observed, quote, If we cannot believe God when our circumstances appear to be against us, we do not believe Him at all. We trust a thief as far as we see him. Shall we dare to treat our God in that fashion? Unquote. Reconstruction must begin with our faith. It must continue into our institutions, Christian schools, homes, churches, vocations. In 1940, Unwin in Hoposia, or the Sexual and Economic Foundations of a New Society, saw less hope for civilization than in 1934. Writing in Hitler's and Stalin's day, he saw America as, quote, the most degenerate of the white nations, unquote. While few Americans would agree with that judgment, his comment on the world scene is of interest. Quote, the power of thought has diminished. The press dictates, suggests, insinuates. A collection of highly selected data masquerades as news, giving a false impression of events. There is little real mental activity, although there is a great deal of talk. The mob falls a ready prey to the oratory of demagogues who, in their will to power, create dissension in order to secure their ends. Numbers, that is quantitative criteria, rule everywhere. And since the rule by numbers always implies a rule by force, force is the weapon the governments use more and more. In international relations, the rule of force is covered by words of idealism, but it is there. Unquote. Unwin's only answer was a plea for return to moral discipline, a futile plea to men without faith and without moral principles. Unwin's plea was pragmatic, not principled. 
Because Reconstruction must be principled, it must begin with God as man's priority. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Luke 10, 27. It must then apply God's priorities to man's life and world, to his institutions and his practices. The goal, undesired, comes not by pragmatic calculation, but by moral discipline and religious force. Calcedon Report number 71, July 1971. Because more than a few have become aware of the growing decay of our worldwide humanistic culture, the concern for answers is extensive and intense. Some of the most anti-Christian leaders have expressed strongly religious hopes and answers. As Theodore Rozak, in The Making of a Counterculture, page 126, says of one degenerate writer's emphasis, quote, The cry is not for a revolution, but for an apocalypse, a descent of divine fire, unquote. The humanists need miracles and demand them. They want a radical change in everything except themselves. Even here, however, some humanists see the problem also. The young leaders of the May, 1968, Paris Insurrection, Daniel and Gabriel Conbendit in Obsolete Communism, the left-wing alternative, write that, quote, The real meaning of revolution is not a change in management, but a change in man, unquote. True enough, but who shall bring about that change in man? God is rejected, so this leaves man in control. Experiments using man as the test animal are already in progress. Is this what the convendits want? If man is to change man, some kind of coercion and inhumanity becomes inescapable. Man, as he is, becomes then only a raw material or resource for the future and is thus expendable. Such an answer only enforces the call for more statism. Whether proposed by statist or anarchist, the insistence that man must change man is a requirement for statist coercion and control. Having abandoned God, the humanist has not thereby rid himself of his need for God. As a result, he makes the state into his new God. The state is a Moloch demanding the sacrifice of youth in every age demanding that the priorities of the state become sacrosanct in the eyes of its citizens. The humanists may rail against the establishment, but their only alternative is to become themselves the establishment. In the new states of Asia and Africa, revolutions come and go. Each new set of leaders vow idealistically to institute a new order and soon reproduce the old evils. Nat Hintoff who earlier wrote an idealizing campaign book about New York's Mayor John V. Lindsay, now finds Lindsay practicing all the tricks of the, quote, power brokers, unquote, whom he once fought against. Men have a habit of remaining sinners, and neither state office nor state coercion can usher men into the state of grace. The statist answer is a moral and social dead end. When God changes man by His sovereign grace, he then commissions man to change society by means of God's law. The rebirth of regeneration of man is God's task. The application of God's law word to all of life is man's task. There are today many earnest champions of Reconstruction, concerned humanists who recognize that civilization is in decay. Because their answers are humanistic and are statist, they inescapably fail. 
because they simply reproduce the existing evils. The answer is well stated in the title of T. Robert Ingram's excellent study, The World Under God's Law. The financing of godly reconstruction is by means of the tithe. See report number 43. Social financing is an inescapable necessity. It will not do to rail against the state, welfareism, public schools, and other forms of socialism if we do not have a legitimate alternative. In every era in Western civilization when tithing declined, social financing was instituted by coercive and statist means. During much of the medieval era, health, education, and much more were all financed by means of the tithe. Later, under Puritanism, all these things and newer institutions, such as workhouses for job training, were products of the tithe. When state financing returned with the decline of Puritanism, the evangelical reawakening led, in the early part of the 19th century, to an abandonment again of statist answers. W.K. Jordan, Philanthropy in England, 1480-1660, has given us an account of the English scene in that era. In the U.S., in the first half of the 19th century, voluntary societies, products of tithe funds, were formed to deal with every kind of social problem, provide Christian schools for immigrants, care for orphans, seamen, servants, and others, and to work to further the, quote, moral government of God, unquote, in every sphere. Whatever its faults, America then was a very free society, and its people were truly upper and middle class because of their emphasis on certain principles. First, they were future-oriented as Christians who saw history in terms of God and a glorious and manifest destiny in terms of Him. Second, this purpose was to be unfolded by means of the voluntary principle, and those who believed in that future gave their money and their efforts to furthering it. Social financing cannot be avoided. The state is ready to assume it as a means of power. As in the church, the tithe places the power and decision in the hands of the believer. State financing cannot be abolished unless it is replaced. The answer is therefore not legislation, but Christian Reconstruction. We cannot wait for people to vote the abolition of welfareism in the public schools. We must construct our own schools and our own more godly welfare agencies. Quietly and steadily, these things are being done. Many of the older agencies, schools, and colleges have been captured by the humanist and statist. The best way to honor the memory of their founders is to carry on in their spirit by establishing new agencies, churches, schools, and colleges. The lower class concentrates on the present and blames, quote, the world, unquote, or the, quote, establishment, unquote, for all its problems. An upper class is too busy with the problems of Reconstruction and the duties of everyday life to have much time for tut-tutting over the world. Every man who builds has his eye on the future, and he is busy making it for when tomorrow comes. It is his work that stands in it, whereas all the whining and complaining of the bewailers is gone with the wind. The world was not empty when we came into it. Other men have labored, and we have entered into their labors. Now, in a time of cultural decay, the need to rebuild is especially urgent, and, as always, it takes time, money, and work. Those unwilling to pay the price, and those who discourage easily, have no future. 
Let them eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. Of such men Solomon said, quote, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be heavy of heart. Unquote. Proverbs 31.6 Nowadays, those who are, quote, ready to perish, unquote, want marijuana as well. Meanwhile, the work of reconstruction goes on all around you. True, new foundations do not loom as large as old structures, but they are there. But where are you? In the old structures or building on the new foundations? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.